KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program, show all about land, housing, and politics. It's not every episode of this program we get into the nuts and bolts of land-based taxation, but it's very exciting when we do. And this is such an episode we have on Lars Doucet out of Texas. He's written a series of three very interesting and well-received articles about the practice and theory of land value taxation, including the overall value of land, theories of capitalization rates, and very excitingly, assessment practices. So we're getting deep into that. Without further ado, yeah, let's just jump in. Well, welcome, Lars. Thank you so much for being here. Howdy, Mark. What's up? Yeah, so uh, I think a lot of people probably know what you've been up to recently, but let's assume uh, let's assume that everyone's fresh to this. Uh, in short, you've written a couple uh, articles. Uh, first, a book review of, of Progress and Poverty, uh, and then a series of three articles getting into the empirics. Uh, and I'll say, in general, I... I come in with a sort of skepticism of the empirics are always so muddy. I usually kind of steer clear. I, I feel very uh, kind of you're just going to get stuck in the quicksand. But uh, I, I'm impressed that you dug in and really made uh, some really nice assessment. Uh, call it a literature review, call it whatever. But uh, yeah, without further ado, uh, just 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 talk about uh, you know these three articles uh, and what uh, what brought you to do it. Yeah, sure. And just for anyone here who's new to, new to Mark's podcast, you know, Mark and I are both what you would call Georgists, um, interested in the works of Henry George and his economic theories about, among other things, why the rent is so damn high. But yeah, so um, the whole story is I wrote a book review on progress and poverty, did a bunch of numbers, uh, it won the book review contest, to my surprise. And then people were like, okay, Georgism, cool theory, bro. Does it work? And the answer was, at the time, uh, I don't know, because I just read a book and wrote about it. And so then I was like, okay, well, let's get serious about this. Let's dig into some things. And so I asked around and I try, I framed it around people's most common objections and, and forms of skepticism. And the three main objections and forms of skepticism I encountered were one, land might've mattered in the 1800s when we were mostly agricultural economies, but now like, you don't, you don't think of like land barons with large tracts of land as like being some kind of king in Amer in England over a bunch of wheat fields or in Japan over a bunch of rice paddies, you know, so, so land doesn't really matter anymore. We've, we've evolved as a society past land. And so George is obsessed with land doesn't matter. So that was part one. And then two, it's like, okay, George's chief policy prescription is the land value tax. Oh yeah. So like back in part one, some people say it's like, okay, if you want to replace taxes with land value tax. Well, like if land is important, you can't raise enough. So it's a stupid idea. And then the next objection is it's like, okay, well, so you raise this land value tax. Well, smart guy, all the landlords are just going to pass that right on to your tenants. So you really haven't changed anything. Like that's not going to keep the rent from going up. Yeah. And then the third part was, okay, even if we, I agree that land is a huge deal. And even if I agree that land value tax can't be passed on to tenants and it meaningfully can end speculation in land, which is the purpose of it. It doesn't matter unless you can accurately assess the value of land. What that means is like, you need to be able to tax the value of land. Well, what is that? There's a house on most land and we know how much the house and the land sold for. So we can see that and we can base property tax based on that. But if you want to exclude the value of the building or the improvements, how do you actually do that? And so a bunch of people were skeptical of that. And so I went for five months just digging into all the research I could. Um, so, so most of the actual findings are other people's research. I didn't go out and do a bunch of research papers, but I went and 
read a bunch of research papers and uh, interviewed some people and gathered all that data and synthesized it and put it to those three questions. And um, I think the answer to the three questions is, is land a really big deal? Um, yes, absolutely, and more than I thought. Um, can land value tax be passed on to tenants? Um, the literature seems pretty confident that it can't. And can unimproved land value be accurately assessed separately from buildings? The answer is probably. That question depends a lot on your methodology and state of practice. I think you definitely can. I think the state of the art is pretty, pretty good and we can get better. And I think the actual practice in a lot of places is kind of subpar. And so it's a matter of implementation practice and theory. And I think we can get better at all three of those. Yeah, big question is, well, even if it's imperfect, should you try? And I think there's a very strong right. argument that you should. Yeah, I guess there's a fourth line of, of, of critique, and this is a very common one, which is just when you have any sort of contract in place, having any change to taxation policy or regulation is illegitimate and it's theft, which is, I mean, I, I think a very, it's, it's, it's a cousin of taxation is theft. It's kind of a goofy right. non-starter. The only real grounds for that, if you want to go to a full in-cap Rothbardian world, which I'd say is just kind of goofy. I think in any realistic, you know, society, the fact that you have taxation and regulations which can change in time should just be taken for granted. That's what democracy and what right. society is. So Yeah, no, I mean, that's the remaining criticism is, is basically the transition is going to create winners and losers. And I think it's important to acknowledge practical political sources of opposition and engage with that. But I think as like some knockdown argument that it's like, I bought the land under these terms. And so therefore you can never change it is kind of unfair. And it's also like, like people are like, how are you going to compensate all these landowners? And it's like, well, when they raise my income taxes, they don't compensate all the laborers. You know, it's like when they... When, and, when you and, change pollution policy, you don't compensate all the polluters. Right. I mean, you could. I don't think you should. And that's right. the question. Like, you can deal with... This is a political problem. And I think it's just, you know, a political problem solving the world of politics. I think it's I think it's important. And I think it's, you know, a, a good part for... Um, it was beyond the scope of my initial series because, I mean, it took me five months and I wanted to finish it before the end of the year. So it's something I will address eventually. And I think there's some good responses to it. But I think it's in terms of that you shouldn't try really speaks to me as a kind of special pleading, you know, like, I mean, I mean, policy is messy. We make changes all the time and I don't see why this policy should be some magical third rail. We're not allowed to touch. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think these three are much more, I think, interesting in that you can actually get into real questions of look at the data. What does it say? And while that is, you know, it, political issues are interesting. The fact that like so many people only want to talk about that is a bit dispiriting because I think uh, there's a lot of really interesting. Well, let's just get, get into it. Uh, the first one right there, we can ask about, OK, is land a big deal? Um, and you, you mentioned earlier people, a lot of people have the misapprehension that, you know, the, the George's writings were about agricultural land. Uh, when that wasn't even the truth at that, the time he was not one of the physiocrats. He was writing about urban land value, but on top of it, like, this is a question like people say, Oh, are you trying to prove that the single tax, you know, in the original form is, you know, the only way forward. I, I would not call myself remotely a single taxer, but no matter what, it should be interesting to say, will this matter? <laughs> will this create a lot of value? Right. And the other question is like, uh, at, at what magnitude will it? So I guess the first question is like, yeah. So when you're trying to say you're going to create all this taxation through land, it's going to 
pay for stuff. I'm going to throw aside, even though I, I'm very sympathetic to the functional finance MMT framework, let's frame this in terms of paying for it. Uh, what can you pay for? And uh, just, just, you know, what's your, what's your 20 second summary of, of what, what you got out of this? Okay. Well, if you want to leave with that. Okay. So um, it depends on where you're talking about. You want talking about USA or we're talking about Australia? Cause those are the two places I got figures on. Uh, I guess the idea is kind of any first world nation we can say, but uh, is, is it a very different answer if you look at both? Um, well, I got some slightly different ones here. I'll just tell you both. It doesn't take long. So so anyway, Dwyer tells us in the taxable capacity of Australian land and resources that um, land income, which is the amount of uh, annual recurring beneficial income that is generated by land in Australia, is about 75% the amount of all the other taxes they currently raise. Yeah. Um, and then if you compare it only to company and personal income taxes, so that would be like corporate and income taxes here, it's 136% of those two figures added together in Australia, according to Dwyer. And then for um, the American values, and Australia does a much better job of measuring their land values than we do. Half of part one of his land a big deal was just me trying to come up with a good value for American land value using like 14 different sources. Um, but let me just skip to the end here. Um, if you're just talking about the federal level, depending on what capitalization rate we use and whether we use, you know, one of my two big sources, which is Smith or the Federal Reserve, you can basically raise somewhere between $1.1 and $3.3 trillion um, just from 100% tax on land rents, land income alone. Now, to give that meaning, so people often talk about like, oh, we spend all this money on defense. Um, if we didn't spend on defense, what could we spend it on? You know, we spend about 0.68 trillion in defense um, in 2019. That's that's pre-pandemic. That's the budget you want to use. It's not like an outlier. Um, we spend a, a trillion dollars on Social Security, about a trillion dollars on Medicare and Medicaid combined. And then all other federal spending is about 1.67 trillion. So you add that together, that's like um, like four and a half trillion and change just doing the number in my head. And even at the lowest estimate, the lowest, most pessimistic estimate of what we could raise just from taxing land income, you could pay for all of social security or all of Medicare and all of Medicaid, um, just with the lowest, most pessimistic estimate of how much we could raise from land income taxes. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's worth mentioning. I mean, there's kind of like, maybe talk about like the theory and micro foundations and so on. There is theory out there that talks about like, look at Stiglitz's, the Henry George theorem, and look at work that Vickery did. A lot of these have to do with urban dynamics. They look at what are the public goods within an urban city based on infrastructure, other public goods, and how does this generate land value, which could be brought back to pay for those public goods, uh, which right. is a very different question than basically what are national expenditures, including welfare state expenditures in a modern nation state? Because honestly, the welfare state is really about, you know, you could say smoothing incomes across different uh, people in a population. You know, Social Security, you pay for your pension throughout your lifetime, you know. and And your rent. Yeah, right. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's all connected. It's we're not just uh, nodes working the factory. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's an important question, right? It's like, this is a naive analysis. This is assuming that you just take this value and you take that value and you compare them. And it doesn't ask the question of, well, how does imposing this policy change things? Right. And um, in my opinion, this that makes this a more conservative estimate, because like you said, the Henry George theorem and the at core um, theory at core standing for all taxes come out of rent. 
um, basically both propose that public spending and a reduction in income or capital taxes will each cause land values to rise, which will increase the value of your tax base, yeah. right? So that if you spend more on public goods, um, that will increase the amount of taxes you're able to raise from a land income tax. So like those public goods will effectively really pay for themselves under certain constraints. And then at core, all taxes come out of rents. Like if you lower income taxes, um, people have more money. So um, the rents go up, but then you can, you can get back at that with a land income tax to um, keep that from raising the rents and then making sure that you, you have um, an expanding tax base. So like you basically are raising the taxes one way or the other, but the question is just whether those taxes are levied privately by a landlord or whether they go to society in general to pay for society's expenses. I mean, call it call it a, a virtuous cycle. There, you know, it's like it's it's a money pump if you do it right. But yes, I mean, I think no matter what you're really planning to do with it, whether it is about because you could say. Uh, you could say keep the federal taxes in place as they are and let's just go to town with local infrastructure you know yes. that's that's another that's no way and honestly no matter how you're doing it more of this revenue it's going to be good you know no matter where you pipe it to uh but very top level thing you're talking about these you know overall estimates for land rents per year or overall land value which is just basically you know what's the capitalized value uh you know, it's it's a lot of money. You're talking about uh, Albuy and 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 Smith and all this low end twenty trillion, high end over forty trillion. Uh, right. And and just to jump in, you said like on the local level. If you're talking just the local level, like just state spending, that doesn't. This is this figure I've got here doesn't include local spending, but just state spending, state net spending, which is minus federal yeah. um, contributions. I mean, my estimates are taking us anywhere from seventy five to two hundred and thirty percent. Yeah. of what states are spending now could be raised just by their own land values, right? You know, you could do, I mean, and, and states that already have property taxes, if they were to shift purely to land taxes, I mean, they could they could do a lot with it. Yeah, exactly. And you could consider, I mean, in some sense, you could consider the richer cities could have a more generous welfare state within the city. A place mm-hmm. like New York City could have pensions which exceed Social Security. I think they absolutely could and should. Uh, so you have to really consider these like these kind of uh, knock-on items. But it, So the basic approach is between your floor and your ceiling, um, as you say here, are between a cost approach and something more of like looking at you know, what are actual land sales records and so on. So right. why don't you describe yeah. the difference? Yeah, let me, let me unpack what that is. It's like, so, so a big part of this paper was it's like, okay, how much is all the land in America worth? And what we really care about is the recurring land income. Um, but so like the floor we had basically was somewhere between like 20 something and 40, 40 something. I think 24 yeah. to 44 trillion is the land value, not the land income, but the land value. Um, and so basically you have this method that, um, so the cost approach is, okay, I'm trying to assess the value of a home. I want to subtract out the value of that house from the observed sale price of that house plus land. And that'll give me the value of the land, just simple algebra. So how do I determine what the house is worth? Well, I looked at it's made out of timber and it has this kind of a roof. And I basically put in an order for get someone to give me a quote for what it would cost to build that house new. And then I factor in the fact that this house is like 10 years old, apply some depreciation and out pops the value of that house. Subtract that from the value of the property, which is the house plus the land. And then it's like, okay, so here's the land value. Now, the problem with the cost approach is that um, cost is not price. Cost is what is the money you have to pay to make something. And price is what someone's willing to pay for it. 
Like I could go buy a bunch of organic lemons and squeeze some lemonade and put it out on my front porch. Um, but I'm probably not going to break even on that because my cost is not necessarily going to be the price that I can charge. Right. And the same thing kind of goes for buildings. Um, the main issue with it is that, um, first of all, you need to know all kinds of knowledge about the building right? You know, does it have mold inside? I can't necessarily tell from the outside, like all these kinds of things. And um, secondly, you have the issue of obsolescence of the building, right? And so as a, as a really contrived example, just to drive the point home, I use the example of an amusement park. Like say I've got an amusement park with roller coasters on it and it's on some prime land and all the local developers 20 years later want to tear down my roller coasters and build apartments there. And they're willing to pay me uh, a nice figure for the right to do that. So they're not interested in buying that property to operate an amusement park. Yeah. They're interested in buying the land. And those roller coasters, even if they're well-maintained, aren't worth the cost it would uh, of building new roller coasters minus 20 years depreciation. They're worth nothing because no one wants a roller coaster right now. You know, especially and, with like a vintage, you know, 1985 roller coaster just isn't that good anymore. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Now there's like now there's a better you know, um, now let's say there's even a better like roller coaster park down the street that has more modern materials and stuff that's like fancier and more fun and, and cool. You know, it's like there's less demand for mine. And so the issue is like the price of the building is dependent on I have a demand for that building at that location. And that is what the market value of the building actually is. And so um, that's the cost approach. And it generally has the effect of overvaluing buildings and undervaluing land I, I think this might have to do something like the fact with like you you take the cost and you have a de depreciation schedule you throw at it i think this is reflecting depreciation schedules really don't get at how weird and bad things are in cities today especially mm -hmm. I, mean, I was looking at there's a you know jens von bergman in uh in vancouver was doing a study about like teardowns in vancouver and the general idea is okay what is the building you know cost versus the cost of the land you know and he says like uh, for like a healthy new build uh the building should be about two-thirds that's like a pretty good line it should be two-thirds building one-third land out of the gate and then in time that will change and i think you know effectively the land will become a higher cost as the building depreciates uh and what you see in a place like vancouver is like when it gets below 20 percent, there's a large chance people will buy it just to tear it down implying there is no value the, the building, building being 20 percent. yeah le less value. than 20 percent, especially when it gets down to less than five percent when it's 95 percent land five percent building people are buying to tear down because the building has yeah. zero value in real terms negative value in real terms and I'm not even sure depreciation schedules really reflect the fact that it gets that bad. 95. Yeah, and, and it's like depreciation schedule. What is it? What is it really saying? Right. It's like saying that it's like it, it's supposed to be some abstract measurement of the thing basically falling down over time. But like we all know, like price is a function of supply and demand. And it's a demand for that thing, you know, and it's important to remember that. Anyway, we could we could go into detail about the deficiencies of the cost for approach yeah. but and i think there's one more thing about the depreciation i mean there are two different ways to look at the depreciation schedule one is it's the actual reflection of how value goes down in time and the second one being it is uh, an accounting fiction which i think mm -hmm. in practice you know that's really what determines all these different factors but you're know, in the weeds on that so that's that's cost approach there's a lot of you know, you're you're kind of getting away from the real data points, and I think it gets a little bit screwy. Right. But yeah, talk about the other approach. 
Yeah. So the other approach is to, if we want to measure land, we can all agree that the best, so the best source of the value of something, because we are all marginalists here, is the price that it actually goes for in the market, you know? Um, and when you just observe market transactions, you know, ones that aren't like some dad selling a property to his son for $5, you know, as an obvious gift, you know, arm's length sales, you can tell it's like, okay, well, these are just the values of it. And so it'd be really convenient if you could just have enough pure land sales. And, you know, real estate agents are always saying location, location, location. The value of land is mostly the location. There's some other things associated with it, but it's largely location. So when you have two plots of land that are identical in every way, they're right next to each other. And one of them has a house and one of them doesn't, but they're both the same size, shape, grade, everything. It's probably a fair estimate to say that the land value of those plots is near identical, right? And on this basis, you can do a comparison and regression method where basically you observe all the vacant land sales and teardown sales because that's where someone's saying, I value this building at nothing, maybe even negative, right? And so then you can say that transaction is for the land. Then you build up a database of these things and you can regress out the value of the land. Like you can do it individually by hand of just, I mean, I did this in the article. I find a bill, I find an empty lot in the heart of San Francisco and I find a townhome right next to it on a lot of similar size, you know, account for the size difference, subtract, you know, the value of the empty lot. And it's like, okay, the building's worth like, you know, you know, a fraction of that. Right. Sure. Sure. You know, and so um, you can do this at scale with computers. And what's um, but what's really interesting is that um, one of the things with uh, Alboy's method is that in his data set, he includes only sales of vacant land. And so the criticism of that kind of a method is, is you know, he's, he's able to do that on enough plots of vacant land to basically tell you what all of the ones he doesn't know are likely worth by generating this heat map expanding over every urban area. And so the argument is like, okay, but your data set's too sparse. There's not enough vacant land sales in cities. That's all in the, in the suburbs and rural areas. And there's this shocking graphic in his uh, appendix where it's this heat map of vacant land sales in cities, and it's all clustered in the city center. And it's the opposite of what you expect. You have more land sales pure land sales and teardown sales as you approach the city center than when you get out in rural areas. And it, it makes sense because it's like, that's where all the real estate activity is. Um, and, uh, and that's where the most valuable land is too. And so even despite some of our dysfunctions in um, our cities, there's still enough to, in order to value the entire metro area, there's still enough data points to do to get make close direct contact with the thing everyone agrees is the most accurate way to measure land, which is to go find some land and observe what people are willing to pay for it. Yeah, I, I saw I saw Abu's paper when it dropped a few years ago, and I thought it was, it's really fun because it goes through every metro area. You can just look at you know data of like how the city center is valued, how it drops off, and they are very like kind of clean you know lines that that reflect you know kind of von Thunen theory and and all sorts of mm-hmm. also just population drop offs of, of cities as well. It's like, oh, that's well and good. And I'm just like, I was like wondering, yeah, I, I kind of assumed that like it maybe is kind of sparsely, I, I wouldn't say you would get as much clean data in the center, but I think when you really look down to it, there is a lot of weird activity too. Like mm-hmm. when you sell like a land lease under a skyscraper, that happens at a city core all the time for all this like right. weird slicing and dicing. And you know, that that's good data, but. Uh, I, yeah, I'd, I'd have to reread the paper to see, see about how you do with land leases and stuff. But yeah, basically to get the final figure, like, 
like Al Boy only gives us data up to 2010. And he also only measures urban land. So to get, so he's already way higher than the cost approach method, but to get to the rest of it, you have to add in some other figures. And those come from a guy called, uh, I think Jeffrey Johnson Smith. And I mean, if you want to know about the method, you know, read the, read the article and read the, and read his book, uh, Counting Bounty, The Quest for Measure the, Earth, the Worth of the Earth. Hmm. Um, but he, he basically comes to a figure that is, is, in my opinion, pretty plausible, and it's about $44 trillion. Um, and it, it might be undercounted, especially if you include these dynamic effects like Adcor and the Henry George theorem. But it's, it's certainly way larger than the figures some other people are throwing out. Some people point out, like, will, will like suggest that like all of the, all of the land in America is worth like a, a trillion or a couple trillion. And it's like, no, it's like yeah. order of magnitude above that, at least. And you have to look like too, like you look at like how this happened, like like at the subprime bubble, things are you know a multiple like two in a lot of these these things. Things have become twice as valuable in the last you know decade plus. And the question is, does that reflect a couple things? Like it reflects if people are paying it. Is it worth it in the fact that it is it, you know creating revenue? Are the speculative bubbles? I think the answer is like yes and yes. Uh, you know, it's there's. As you talk later, how this is reflected by bank credit, you know, it, real estate is always in forms of being a bubble. And this reflects that is the real value on the ground at the moment. But the question is, is that really what it's worth? You could say, oh, the bubble will deflate. But you could also say that when you really utilize cities with better infrastructure, this bubble will actually expand but in a more sustainable way. So right. think, it's, like, it's like, what is, what is the bubble being leveraged for? It's being yeah. leveraged. It, it, it based off of the amount you're able to extract from people rather than the amount that you could produce. Right. Yes. You know, and, and to kind of get to your point, like I'll, I'll speed run the rest of the, the, the article <laughs> sure, sure. is like, so it's like, okay, so we can pay for all this stuff. Cool. Who cares? But like the other point is not just that this is a good source of revenue. It's that we need to talk about the pathology of what the power of land is doing to our economy right under our noses, you know? And so like, if you, there's a couple papers I cite where I talk about like the percentage of bank loans. It's like over 50% of bank loans in a bunch of countries, um, including ours. I think ours is 68% as of 2007 and it's 87% in China um, are all like, like 68% in Norway are like real estate loans. Right. And globally it's approaching 60% as of 2010 is just how much of bank lending is going to real estate. And it's huge in the UK. It's huge in New Zealand. You know, just just everywhere you look in any developed country. And then the real kind of coup de grace is uh, Thomas Piketty wrote that famous book, you know, Capital in the 21st Century. And his basic thesis is very easy to understand is that the return to capital is increasing faster than the growth of the economy, which means left to its own devices, the capitalists will own everything, you know. And then I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is, is it Romley or something? Somewhere R-O-G- that. Yeah. <laughs> R-O-G-N-L-I-E. I, I'm he, not your best resource for pronunciation, but let's go for it. Yeah, he does a critique of Piketty where he points out it's like, okay, so the thing Piketty misstates is that he doesn't deal with depreciation correctly for capital assets. And once you deal with that, you find that the return to quote unquote capital is mostly just, and I think Ronley goes so far as to say entirely due to housing. So housing as a sector is entirely responsible for the return to quote unquote capital. And um, as we all know, buildings are depreciating assets, but land is an appreciating asset. So the return to housing is really the return to land. And then what's funny is speaking of Piketty, like I even got some graphs that Piketty himself was tweeting out that show that the composition of gross personal assets in places like Spain 
is mostly land. You yeah. know, I have another graph for that for the UK. I have some other ones from Piketty himself, from his own book, where he shows, and this is the whole like land is a big deal, like we're not an agricultural economy anymore. He shows the shift of value going from agricultural land to residential housing over time, right? And you can see the clear inflection point. And now like residential housing is the majority of the value of national capital in France and the UK. And we show, you know, this study even from McKinsey that shows how much of like real asset values are tied up in real estate and therefore, you know, majority land. It's not you know, a shock. We, like earlier, earlier this year, like, I mean, when the, I mean, this year, last year, the, when the central bank is shoring up, uh, you know, just basically credit markets everywhere, buying mortgage backed securities. That is one of their big things now because it is like for better, or for worse, it is one of the foundations of modern banking. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not like it's, Time to party like it's 2008. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, and I mean, I think too, we're talking about grand rents in land, but you also like, I think part of the critique over time is like we move from kind of, you know, this, this classic commercial economy to one involving big firms with a lot of real industry, a lot of real machines. But right. honestly, the big firms now, you look at their physical assets versus non-physical assets in time, and it is non-physical assets are growing tremendously. You could say, does this include things like, you know, IP, which could be considered, you know, kind of within the economic rent paradigm? Uh, I think I right. think in many cases, yes. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, talking about non-real assets, my day job is as a blockchain game analyst. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to talk about capital flooding non-real assets, I like literally write research papers on that every day. Is that like, I mean, investors are finding more and more ways to like, invest in value, like value levers, I like to call them, that they're mm. trying to just spin out of just spun sugar in the air, where they're basically trying to find some kind of mechanism to allow them to collect passive income off of other people when something goes big, right? And um, they're inventing new ones all the time. And like, so now there's, there's now a digital real estate market in a lot of these metaverse games. And I'm detailing how as far as I can tell, they have all the recipes for a digital housing crisis that plays out exactly like the one in the real world. Um, but the one thing these people don't seem to realize is that there's one Manhattan in the real world, but in the digital world, just because you've cornered digital Manhattan doesn't mean some competitor isn't just going to spin up a whole new one. So yeah. I think they're all in for a for a hard landing there. But, you know, IP, I think um, whether or not it's a true 100% land-like asset, it sure is pretty dang close. Um, I think things like you know, um, speaking of techies, you know, like uh, orbital real estate for satellites and um, other aspects of the commons, you know, are things that are being enclosed kind of right under our nose without much of a fight. Um, and, and and other parts like that, you know, and then a copyright is, of course, eternal um, patents on pharmaceuticals constantly having ways to be extended and extended in the midst of a pandemic, you know, for vaccines that were funded by the government, by the taxpayer, by the people. And yet, you know, we, 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 we can't give Africa and, and other places a break on the patents, you know, seems kind of strange to me. Yeah, the distinction within the the George's value system of, of production value versus obligation value. I think it's just a great phrase, obligation value for stuff where it's like it's it is things that people trade for, 
but it doesn't re- it's zero sum you know and, and so much right. of the economy is essentially zero sum all these things that already exist uh, that we're still divvying up but uh, we really I guess need to move on because I think the first one it, it's great but I really like parts two and three uh, so let's, let's talk about let's talk about uh, the second part can you pass on the land value tax uh, so what your your answer you said earlier uh, uh, no is your conclusion so what, what do you base this on yeah, and I've done a lot more research since I wrote this paper because I got a couple of good points of pushback on it that I'll, I'll address here. Okay. But the main the main question is, okay, so uh, we pass a land value tax, let's say it's 100%, and let's say our assessment is just magically on point. You know, we'll cover that in part three. Sure. But um, if we just grant that, I mean, what stops the landlord, you know, if he has to pay, you know, 50 bucks more a month or 500 bucks more a month, depending on how valuable his property is, what's to keep him from just raising the rent and just making the tenant eat it? Because, um, and this intuition is like very reasonable because it happens with almost every other tax, you know? So why is land value taxes so magical? You know, if you don't understand the underlying theory, it seems like it's like, okay, what's what's going on here? And the big an- answer, like theoret- I'll talk about the theor- theoretical basis and then the empirics. The theoretical basis is it's like, okay, land is the class of assets that you can't make more of. Yes, we know the Netherlands exists, special case, and we would consider the seabed to pre-exist and be land and the sand you dump on it to be improvements. But the point is that um, you can't make more locations and having that leverage over locations is what allows you to, you know, charge these extractive rents. And um, with a land value taxes levied, the landlord needs to pay the tax no matter what, whether they're leasing the property out or not. And um, every other landlord has to as well. And so this, and and they can't change production in response to the tax. That's what real, like the price is not, okay, I am a seller. I wanna sell something for a certain price. So please give me my price. That's not how it works. It's supply and demand, at least in a non-monopoly situation or non-monopsony, I don't know what the right word is, but one of those monopoly words where- well, They coincide in all these different places, you know? Right, we're, we're, we're in a place where you don't have the power to dictate prices, yeah. you know, in, in a relatively free and unconstrained market, um, supply and demand does things. So a good example is taxes on gasoline or taxes on cigarettes, right? So when you put a tax on gasoline or cigarettes, there is a marginal oil well or a marginal tobacco farm somewhere down the line that's like, okay, I was making like one cent per unit and now I'm making negative two because of the tax. So it's no longer profitable for me to be in business. So I'm gonna shut down production, you know, until like I'm back at like, uh, maybe I'm gonna like, you know, do something else with my time right now. And so the supply of the thing decreases, right? Because it, 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 the marginal oil well and the marginal farm on the bad land is, is not producing as much. And so there's less tobacco and there's less cigarettes and there's less gasoline in the market. And then you'll find that the price from the supply and demand imbalance rises almost as much as the tax, just because that's how supply and demand works. Um, And that is how you get your customer to accept the price because there's less of the stuff on the market now because the price has changed the margins. The classic theory is always, you know, what are the two different, uh, you know, levels of inelasticity that goes into it? If you have mm-hmm. a purely elastic, you know, market, which, you know, how often you have this in all senses, you have, I guess, like purely, you know, everyone is a price, you know, uh, taker, you know, you get perfect results. Like how often that really happen? Pure commodities, you know, happens, you right. know, maybe in like weird grain markets, but not, not even that. Uh, but really, and I think the thing is too, like you're talking about like tobacco, for example, there's like this idea that like, 
when you have people hooked on cigarettes, they're hooked. And the people mm-hmm. making it, they're, they're more fluid. You can go in and out of the industry. Money flows in and out as far as investments. Uh, and, you know, I, I think in general, it's it's tricky with housing. You know, housing, how competitive is it? You know, I think there's a lot of inelasticities as far as production in cities. And that's what mm-hmm. I think scares maybe a lot of kind of competitive analyses. You know, how does it reflect with right. zoning laws and, and so on? But in general... Certainly, there is an inelastic, you know, form of, of of on the on the seller's part as far as location. Right, and the most important point is, it's like regardless of what the theory is, is it because like whether it's because of the actual economic theories or because a magical unicorn just makes it happen? What really matters is what actually happens in real life, right? We have this cute model, cool theory, bro. Does it work? So I did a little bit of a literature review, and to try and keep myself honest, I you know, went on to the research paper search engines and I, you know, put in land value tax and land tax and just went down the line and just gathered every paper I could find. Sure. Right. And then after this paper, I did the same thing for property taxes because they're not the same, um, but they are related. And I found some really interesting results. There's this one paper that was kind of my headline paper, um, which is the Danish paper. And I spent a lot of time talking about it, but it's not the crux of my argument because I find like a dozen other papers that say basically the same thing. Um, and the Danish paper's contribution is just that it really kind of gets around the endogeneity problem, um, which I can go into. But basically, I found like a dozen papers on land value taxes specifically that find that um, you have what we call full capitalization, um, or at least partial or substantial capitalization, which means that if you levy the tax, that tax is capitalized, quote unquote, into the price, which means that they know that that tax is coming. And so therefore, it's less valuable to own that land because you can charge less in rent. So the price goes down and thus the rent goes down. That is the overwhelming finding of land value tax studies. And um, spoiler alert, you find the same thing even for property tax, which was surprising. Um, you even find some property taxes that find full or even overcapitalization. You find some that find none, but the vast majority of them find full or partial capitalization on property taxes, which is really interesting. So, so if I was like to interpret this, I would say that really, you know, I think it can very easily, like, can you pass it on? People are imagining kind of current renters, current landlords, and kind of those dynamics. But there's something kind of broader here, which is kind of what can you bring into production and what does it sell at? So, you know, there are kind of two options. And you talk about the capitalization. So the idea is you raise the taxes, land price goes down. What does that mean? If that means what it says, it means more people can go into a city, buy up land for cheaper, and then build on it. And let's just say that construction rates are going to be the same, assume no worse. I think they'd be better. Uh, but then you would build on it and you can kind of continually, you know, make housing more like widgets because the land price right. and all the other kind of hard, you know, kind of baseline costs goes down. So right. really that's, you're bringing more production. If it's, if this didn't happen in the long term. If you're going to a city, hey, look, everyone's getting squeezed in the city. I want to bring prices down by building more. You couldn't because the land price would still be sky high. And right. this is saying, yeah, it does lower. Yeah, I think it's it's trickier when you look at a per renter, how landlord tenant relations work. But certainly mm-hmm. at the base level, the the ability to bring more buildings into a city is your ultimate alternative. Right. Yeah. And, and and each of these papers like finds a slightly different like mix of results because there's a lot of noise in this stuff. Like as you're saying, like some people just like refuse to believe any economics paper, but then they conveniently believe whatever their existing intuitions tell them. Sure. Um, which is always like 
if you wanted to like I, I get reasons to doubt economic studies, but then you also need to be a lot less sure of the things you you're you 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 personally believe. Um but like so some of these find you know liquidity effects or I don't know exactly what the right term is for like being more of the the building. Um but they certainly do find that you impose a land value tax. And what the D- Danish paper was so interesting was what makes it so interesting is that you had this overnight change in land value tax policy that had nothing to do with tax policy because they were just redrawing their municipal boundaries. And so each municipal boundary had, like they had a uniform assessment policy for the whole country. And then each municipality, county basically, gets to decide what its individual land tax rate will be. I think they have like split rate property tax, right? And so each one is like different. And then one day they change all the boundaries. And so the next day, this area used to be part of this municipality, but now it's part of this one. And so this area now has increased its land value tax overnight, but without like any kind of, you know, without the decision being about the tax policy, which is... Yeah, just a very rare, almost controlled study. You know, you don't see that often. It's it's like, it's as close as you could get to a randomized control study, you know, that that you could do. It's very rare in natural experiments. And what's great is that you have all these differences in rates, right? As well as a couple of places that basically didn't change, which you could basically call controls. And so like, you can see, like, it's not just that, you see a decrease in prices, you see a proportional decrease once you do the econometrics. Like so that, and in some places like the tax went up. And so like, you can see like the tax goes up, some places the tax goes down and you see prices rising and falling like proportionately, which is really interesting. And so um, that's what like really makes that. And then the fact that, you know, you have that exogenous shock is what makes it even more credible. Now, you should never trust any single paper by itself. And some some people like picked at the study and they said, it's like, well, Denmark has rent control. And it's like, and it does have rent control, not for everything, but for buildings built after a certain period. Um, and yeah, a lot, probably most of the housing stock is since then. So probably like quite a lot is under rent control. So, but so said, well, what's the relevance for that? Because the relevance would be that as it goes you know, let's say that something that would alternatively raise the land values, this would dampen it because there's a certain limit to how much the incomes can change. Is, is Would that be the, the main yeah. effect? I think the main thing, frankly, is some people like pointed it out and it's a convenient excuse to dismiss the entire paper without like being like, okay, well, what is the prediction you would expect from that? And they're just like, I found the confounder, the paper's over, you know? And I'm like, so it's like, okay, so rent control in Denmark keeps rents from rising above a certain rate, but it's like, we still see like, um, we still see properties like, how does that change how things like go down in price or, you know, and then what about the proportionality of all these differences? And then, you know what, I'll give you the Danish paper, you know, just type, just for the sake of argument, throw it away, throw it in the trash bin. What about these other 12 studies? And then you get crickets, you know? So I think that's the, the more interesting thing is that it's like when you have a lot of studies that are all saying the same thing and you dig into the methodology, right? Because I mean, you can get, you can put together a literature review that says just about anything, but if you're not cherry picking and you're looking at the methodology and you're engaging with it, you know, I think you can start to pull some solid signal out. And the fact that we have this solid theory for why, you know, landlords shouldn't be able to pass the tax on. And it doesn't seem like it happens in real life, like makes me more confident that, you know, if you pass an LVT tomorrow, the landlord's not just going to be able to naively just raise their rent by exactly that amount. They might try, but I don't think they'll get away with it. You know, I, th- I think that's where I kind of have maybe like one of 
maybe I don't know if call it an objection, but just a different viewpoint, which is I think these are great theories talking about kind of the empirics of kind of a as applied from a third party different land taxes effects on land price, which is very mm. like when it happens cleanly easily i guess without drama or narrative Mm -hmm. and i think a problem is a lot of times these politicized systems do have narratives and you know for example let's say every landlord in the city said tomorrow you know hey how we get together and raise all of our rents by 40 percent you know we're just gonna we we think we can do it let's just do it and let's say they all did that tomorrow you know, the the theory would say, well, the public express the rent they'll pay. They won't pay it. You know, people will leave the city. They'll be vacant. They'll lose. This will not work. In practice, I think if the landlords really did this cartel behavior, tenants in mass would say, oh, I guess I could like do less this month. I guess like this is the new normal now. We're just screwed. Right. And I think right. it's 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 a it's a fight. You know, it's a fight of like right. what what percentage of overall incomes go to rent versus not. Uh, this is like I, you call it a coordination problem, call it a shelling point. And I think I worry like this is one of my kind of concerns, which is if LVT is imposed kind of suddenly with drama, if landlords agree to kind of have tenants eat it, they will coordinate and essentially have a political fight to pass it on which maybe they'll succeed here's the thing in the long term if you if they are to pass it on this reveals something the land value is higher than previously thought you can't squeeze more out of the land in pure you know passive rents which would mean you reassess them and then you take it back so in the long and then the next year it's like okay well here's your new bill (laughs) but right but they could congratulations, try congratulations, you extracted more. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, you're going to do like quarterly reassessments and it's like, oh, you jacked up the rent. Well, congratulations. You owe more LVT, you know? Yeah. Which, I mean, which, it's to me, like, this is exactly, this is exactly what happened with stagflation in the seventies. Everyone mm-hmm. says you can't pass on inflation to the public. And, and it's like, oh, you can't just, you know, increase wages and then take it from your employer. And then everyone did every, every, basically every, uh, time they bargained, they uh, uh, got higher wages and then higher products, you know, price and then higher wages, right. then higher products. And this went on until and, right. you know, well, what's it, interesting there is that, you know, you also have the argument about monopoly power. Right. Because like I've seen some takes like right now about how inflation is being passed on where yeah. you have like corporate like on investor calls. There's several corporations be like inflation is great. It gives us cover to raise our prices and our profit margins double. Like we don't actually need to raise prices. We just are because yeah. we know people lead it. And that has a lot to do with monopoly power, right? It's like when you have massive consolidation, it's like if every landlord in the world can coordinate, like, I don't see how you're supposed to resist that. Like they can dictate term. Anyone can dictate terms with perfect coordination. Laborers can do that too with perfect coordination. The reason they don't is they do not have perfect coordination. Absolutely. Yes. And, and so like, I mean, if you grant perfect coordination, then anybody can do anything, right? Like me and my buddies can impose some weird, you know, purple space alien theocracy in the United States tomorrow if we had perfect coordination, you know? I mean, even um, for land, I guess the, the options, oh, you can always go out to unclaimed desert land and then start your own city. You always have some out. If you didn't, then like you really are up here. Right. Surf. I mean, I, th- I think basically if you have landlord coordination within a city, I, I'm not sure they could all coordinate. I think there would be defectors. And then I also think they would be hurting their own city in the long run, you know? And I also don't think you're going to impose LVT overnight. I think the only path 
that makes sense politically is a gradual imposition where the benefits are good, where you can get past that initial shock and you can. Um, the other issue is that it's like if we get to a world where land ownership is sufficiently consolidated and you just wind up with a country where most people are renters, like that's that's not a politically great place for a landlord to be, because then, you know, like if you really have a tenants, if you, if you force everyone into a tenant situation and get yourself a tenant revolt kind of thing, then it's not hard to get 51% of the vote to be like, okay, landlords aren't allowed to coordinate and will, you know, you probably get something like Swedish tenant unions bargaining for rents. You know, you'll get real power that results to counteract their power. Right. But this is good pushback. Now, anyway, we yeah. got, yeah, I, I, just think, I, I just think it's a political aspects are, are it's, it's I think even kind of nuttier to get into. But I love the fact that, you know, it, these are really interesting results from, uh, from impositions. Right. And I would love to move the conversation to that away from the, well, obviously, even in spherical cow land, it obviously doesn't work because math. It's like, well, I did the math and it seems like that's not the case. And it's like, well, it's not politically tenable. It's like, well, there's a fun conversation. Let's have that one. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so part three assessments. And I think a lot of people say, oh, this is a big stumbling because it does. I think if you talk about the fact it sounds implausible to a normal person, you can look at a building and say, I can magically determine land versus building. You know, that sounds right. like, a, you know, a th- you know, kind of some weird uh, monks arguing over angels, you know, you right. know centuries ago. Well, the, the main thing is that you just have to understand that. And I do a couple of practical examples of this, like the example of the empty lot next to a building on the same empty lot. And it's in San Francisco and the empty lot costs like a million dollars and the building next door costs, million. I think that house is worth $0.5 million. And I think the land's worth a million dollars because there's an empty lot right next door that's sold for a million dollars, right? That's the heart of it. And then the basics of it from there is extrapolation. There's this method called hedonic regression. And yeah, if you don't understand math or modeling, like it might sound like a little voodoo, but there's a real solid empirical basis to it. And it's also testable. You know, the basic idea is that hedonic regression is basically to figure out you value this thing this much, right? You know, like I, here's an ice cream cone. How much are you willing to pay me for it? And you're like, I'll pay you a dollar. And I'm like, I put some sprinkles on it. How much are you willing to pay me now? And you're like a dollar and 10 cents. I put some gummy bears on it. You're like, how much are you willing to pay for me now? And you're like a dollar and a quarter. And I'm able to work out the individual amount, the, the, the extra value add that the gummy bears and the sprinkles add to the ice cream cone, right? And you do that at scale with math by collecting a lot of data points and looking at what people are willing to pay. And, it's, and then your model is as good as the amount of variables you're able to expose. And so it's like, turns out that one thing that really drives people's preference is how close something is to a good school, right? I mean, they even literally say that, right? So if you have some expert knowledge of what people say, then you can basically tell your model, hey, these are the things to look for. Calculate the geographic distance between every building and a good school and have some measure of how good the school is, even if it's rough, right? Have some measure of how big the house is and how big the lot is and how old it is, right? Because those are good proxies for, you know, various things like see if it's in a floodplain, you know, and all these other things and and distance from a transit line. We, We all know that people love to be close to public good spendings like transit lines and things like that, you know, and then there's, there's no end to how much of this you can go into. And that's just one of many, many different models. So in part three, I go and I look at a bunch of models. I talk to a professional assessor. I even interviewed a couple of other like fee appraisers who I didn't quote in the article just for space. Um, 
And um, what you basically find is like you have a lot of different methods, some that are optimized for areas where you have really good access to data and some that are optimized for when you have basically like crap data, like in a third world country um, where you almost, you can't trust official records and you almost don't know anything, you know, except by like looking at the geography itself, Sure. you know, there are methods where you can make a decent guess. Right. Yeah. And they're optimized for that. And they're optimized for all kinds of different methods. And I look at them and I think the consensus is that it's like, most of these look like they're pretty good because the other question is, it's kind of like um, a game of the price is right. What really matters is it's like, okay, so, People sometimes say you can't do it accurately. It was like, well, I can do it accurately. The question is, can I do it precisely? The difference between accuracy and precision is accuracy is am I more or less right? Precision is how many decimal points am I away from the right figure? We know in upper and lower bound, we know zero is the minimum the property could probably be worth. And then the amount it's sold for is the maximum amount the land could be worth. And the question is just figuring out what percentage of that value is the building, what percentage is the land. And so um, one of the things you can do is that you can find those comparison sites of like next door, empty land versus real land, be like, oh, race was about 70%, you know, and then you go a little further out and it's like, oh, race was about 50%. Oh, go a little further out. Like race was like 75%. It's like, you can start to like draw these connections, but like, again, it's like a game of the price is right. Right. Like what's so bad about being wrong in your land value assessment? Well, we can be wrong in two ways. We can undervalue land or we can overvalue land. And if we undervalue it, well, that's what we're doing right now. And we have all the bad problems we have now. We're playing very safe by like not getting much of it at all. You know, because what are the, what are the, what are the problems? If you don't do it much at all, you're just you're you're starving the public. You know you're you're losing our infrastructure. If you do it too much, there is a real issue, which is there is nothing worse than to foreclose in a place, saying, "Hey, sorry, you know someone else is going to get the land for more, and they're going to use more right, with it, right. and then no one does because like all egg on your face." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna force you're gonna make the land not profitable to hold, right? Or you're gonna you're gonna impose dead weight loss, which is the whole point of doing this is to get rid of dead weight loss. Yeah. So it's really a game of the prices, right? You want to guess an amount. Like as close as you can get without getting over, right? And so, like, I did an exam, and, and Georgia sometimes talk about doing an 85% LVT rather than 100. And, like, if you do the math, that gives you a pretty wide error margin. Like, if you undervalue, if you, if you underassess a building by 15%, you have, with an 85% LVT, you're collecting about a little less than 75% of the land income. And if you overvalue by 15%, but you're only collecting 85% off of that 85 times 115% gives you about like 98. So like it makes, it gives you some pretty good wiggle room if you just collect 85% LVT rather than doctrinaire 100. Um, it gives, and there's um, pretty good evidence that like a lot of these methods can probably get within that range. And then, you know, let's be real. We're not collecting 85% LVT pretty much anywhere. Right. You know, it's like we, we get up to 50% and then we can begin to have this problem, you know, and we'll have an even wider error, acceptable error range then, you know, and I think we can dial it in. I think this, there's been a lot of methods that have come out just in the past 10 years that are honestly really promising. And then, I mean, just as kind of a cherry on top, me and Will Jarvis, wrote a grant to uh, ACX to do a replication study on um, the state of the art of um, mass appraisal and assessment. And we're going to do it in Pennsylvania, probably where they have the best real estate transaction data in America. So we're going to try and see if under ideal conditions, like what the tolerances really are with a view towards making this 
something that anyone could use to implement LVT in their area. And um, so we're, so I'm pretty sure after writing this article that we can do it, I'm sure we can get better. And I actually, I'm now funded to go and try and get better. Yeah. Okay. So uh, to get into it, I think, I think this whole framework is, you know, perhaps, you know, best said, if you have good faith assessors using best practices to make this happen, what can they do? Because I think people do have, I think, the horror stories of assessors happen in practice when you have assessors doing a bad job assessors who like one don't even do their job i think howard jarvis when he was talking about prop 13 uh and why it needed to happen is saying assessors don't reassess enough they do it like once every 10 years things changes so much that your block people don't have the same assessment as their neighbors do Um, and and like it's just guard and like I think you talk about the tax result in Pittsburgh is because they just didn't reassess for like 10 years or something and they did right. and people freaked out and it's like, okay, well you can certainly and, and talk about, I mean, talk about explicit racial and class bias Absolutely. and so on happens all the time. So like almost every, um, so when I was doing my property tax literature review after I wrote part two of investing in property tax rather than um, land tax, you sometimes find papers that say that property tax is actually a regressive tax. And in almost every single one of those they've read, it's because of inaccurate assessments. Yes. And I mean, it, it, it hits people both ways because there's assessments with like racial bias, but there's also like, you know, appraising houses with racial bias. So, you know, it hits you yeah. on the high end and the low end. But, uh, no, but, but talk about like, and I think this is a really important thing. You talk about uh, like 100 years ago, you were talking about like the Houston assessor uh, who right. I think brought more quantitative mes- methods. I think, I don't know if he used explicitly the Summers method. It was the summer system. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And like these are systems which effectively were kind of like the best state-of-the-art regression of its day, which is kind of look at blocks, right, right, right. blocks have patterns, replicate this, right. which is a lot better than trust your gut, oh, this feels right, and oh, I'm a buddy with that right. guy. You right, know? right, right, yeah, yeah, no, so before the summary system, basically, it was just I mean, whatever the assessor felt like they were like, I have knowledge of the market, you know, and maybe it was based in something and local knowledge could help. But I mean, it was really like that one guy had a lot of leeway. And so the summer system is the basis for all modern assessment. Um, We've we've moved on a long way from the summer system. And and the guy you're talking about is J.J. Pastoriza, Houston's first um, first Hispanic mayor. And he introduced what was called the Houston plan, a really short lived Georgia's taxation policy for Houston that at least from the data we have is, is, you know, ancient and kind of peering through the mist of time seems to have worked until the Texas Supreme court shut them down. Yeah. But um, yeah. So the summer system, the basic insight was like, you need to have an objective standard. Now, when people hear objective, it's like, well, what does that mean? What it means is that you have a method and you follow the method rather than just making stuff up. Right. Like the method could still have error or, you know, uncertainty, but there's a procedure you follow. It's, and that procedure means it's objective in the sense that it is the method that is making the assessment and not really the assessor. So if you give the same method to a different assessor, you will get the same or very similar results. And this matters when you have a team of assessors covering an entire region so that you can ensure that there's not gonna be this huge difference because here's where Adam was assessing and here's where Sally was assessing. And suddenly like the rates just like jump right as you cross that border. That's called equalization, right? And so um, good assessment practices take that into account. And what you want is an objective system so that you can't do things like, oh, 
here's some black homeowners, let's screw them over with a bad assessment, right? You want to make sure that doesn't happen. And the way you do that is by creating an objective standard that applies to everybody, you know, and, um, the more transparent and the more frequent your assessments are, the better. Like anyone who complains about assessment, that's basically an argument for getting better at assessments, yeah. right? Like let's get better at assessments, not worse. And if the assessments in your area suck, we need to get better. You know, I was contacted after I finished the um, um, article series, I was actually contacted by some state assessors um, who are in charge of assessments for their states. And uh, I talked to them a bit, interviewed them a little, and they were saying things like, you know, assessment is kind of an older person's game, you know, and a lot of these assessors are, you know, starting to retire. And um, it's kind of a nice, cushy government job. Um, and, but we really don't have enough young people interested in it. So if there's anyone listening to this who wants to do some good and you're pretty good at math, like I don't, I'm not sure if you even necessarily need a college degree for a lot of these positions, as long as you're good at math and willing to learn, like you could become an assessor and you could, if you follow the latest, if you get the latest training and you are up on the latest methods, you could immediately improve the situation in your town without having to change any policy. Because if land is underassessed and you just fix the assessments with the same tax rate, you've essentially imposed a partial LVT, right? And um, I think that's a really important thing to understand. I think in terms of political angle, you know, I think if Georgists will focus on helping the existing assessors do their jobs, you know, so like we come in with these automated methods, we don't want to scare the assessors and be like, we're going to replace you with robots. I think the better angle is it's like, we're going to make you more productive so you can assess more like yeah, oh, robot helpers. Right. Like, like, let's say like, if we have made you, and I think you can make the argument to the town as well is like, rather than cut down your assessors, like assessors are the ones getting you your revenue by, you know, helping you with the tax revenue here. So what you want to do is um, if you double the productivity of the assessment office, double the frequency of the assessments, you know, like most of us aren't even assessing every year. Let's get to that as our standard, you know, with the same and, and with, with the same like cost that we're doing now, like people think it's going to like, you have to have this army of assessors. It's like, we already got armies of assessors and they're actually not that huge. They're, they're fairly small. You would not call them armies, you know, and we can make them more efficient and more productive and get higher quality and more frequent assessments, which is the first step in imposing any kind of um, Georgist project, I think. And it will keep us from having these tax revolts and these very reasonable like objections to the way real estate policy is handled that you've, that you've, you've alluded to there. You know, I think anytime a Georgist policy has fallen apart, it's usually because of bad assessments. And that's also where any racial bias and regressivity in land value property tax comes from, is from bad assessments. So I think those are all arguments to just get better at assessments. I think we can. And I think the path is forward. It, there's a clear path forward on that. I will say your, your Texas privilege is showing. Uh, I think in the last uh, in the last couple uh, years in California, we were like slavering over the idea that uh, you know we don't do assessments. <laughs> like they just like the assess assessor's office just don't do any work. But if Prop 15 was going to pass, it would actually they would have to need all these new assessors. And uh, so many people are like, boy, that would rule to, to like you know get all these people in these new positions. But uh, now there's different. Yeah. There's, Different, different, yeah, uh, yeah, I guess different yeah, environments, no, different people. It's interesting because like in Texas, we're laboring under the fact that we have a Supreme Court that blocks LVT at the state constitutional level, which is really yeah. annoying. But like Texas has really high property taxes, like among the highest in the nation. I'm, we're top five, I think. We're certainly top 10. And honestly, that's one of the reasons that our real estate is as cheap as it is. Um, 
I mean, who knows for how long, because so many of you guys are moving here um, and, and, you know, which, which is fine. But like we're starting to replicate some parts of your housing crisis, uh, certainly in Austin. Um, but the main issue, I, I feel like, is that we have high property taxes. We have assessment assessors because that's our tax base. and We need it. Right. Because we don't have a state income tax. That's the important part, because we can't rely on a state income tax and the state needs money. It's, it's not willing to give up the property tax without a fight. Like there's a guy called Huffines running for governor who wants to abolish the property tax. And like I had some just like killer line about him where it's like, I'm not too afraid about a guy who like lost his last election for whatever office he had before, you know? Um, so I'm not too afraid of him because it's like, where else is the state going to get any revenue from when we've got sales tax, which is regressive and a huge imposition on people. Like that's another thing. I forget which article this was. It's like, the cost, like when people talk about an army of assessors, like the cost of, I think it was 14%, uh, let me see sales tax. Yeah, yeah, here it is. So um, I did an estimate in, in part three about how much it costs to run the departments that collect the tax, right? What is the cost of collecting the tax? Um, and what we see is that the IRS doesn't, you know, have too many high costs to collect income taxes because they outsource that cost to us Yeah. every year. Like how much pain in the butt are you paying or real money, you know, to TurboTax and whoever in your account? Not just normal def- schmucks, you know, imagine what real businesses are doing, you know, it's, it's a- right, right, right. And so, so it's like anywhere between six and 12% of the amount raised by income tax just goes right out to um, the cost of tax collection itself. Yeah. And then sales tax is it's about 3% for all retailers, but it's 13.5% for small retailers. Mm, wow. You know, it's like sales tax is especially burdensome on small businesses. It's another one of these secret subsidies to large consolidated businesses, you know, but land value taxes, I think we found that, um, I think Heffron and Boyd, is it Heffron and Boyd or, or who's saying it? But like, basically one of my sources says that who's all me, is also one of the guys who does a lot of stuff for the International Association of Assessment Officers. He wrote, I think All Me is the one on the textbook that they have. Um, he asserts that basically LVT could be one percent of, yeah. like one percent of the costs of administering uh, of administering it relative to the amount it raises. It's a good return you know? investment, yeah. So I mean, so to go into your to your to your uh, you know, you you did a, a kind of a survey of modern tools, and I mean, I think you can go to the article for all the details, but I think very broadly, there's maybe like a range of of a spectrum. As you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the general question is, you bring in factors, and then you you know emit you know basically the assessment. You can say land in land plus property, because I mean that's you know essentially you know if it's just a pure land right. tax, it's property with zero percent. But you know, there's two there's two basic ways or two you know extremes you can look at. One is you come in as a complete naive and you just kind of crunch the data, sales, land sales records, all these different you know kind of completely naive things, and then it just gives you you're an alien. You don't know what humans do, but right. a, a, apparently these factors matter. Uh, right. And that's and then the other extreme is you you know a lot of things about what people want and you're more opinionated, you know, and I right. think this could uh, this could like, 
avoid completely illogical consequences, but then also maybe it's a little bit too heavy handed, but you know, right. I think you probably want to find some sort of where somewhere in the difference, but I mean, we want to get more in the details of kind of those, those two. Yeah, approaches. No, no, those, those things are good to do because I also have some experience in machine learning outside of this. Right. And there's some caveats to avoid and some things people will naturally bring up that they're right to bring up. So like the, there's one is the kind of like zero knowledge approach and there's no true zero knowledge model. Every no- model has bias baked in. It's just important to be, honest about what your bias is. So one way is to just do a pure land regression where you try to find, like Owlboy did, enough vacant land sales that you're like, okay, here's some land and here's some other land and here it is on the map and here's some land with stuff on it. And so it's not pure land. What, you know, build a heat map, extrapolate from just the pure land and then assume, like just connect the dots, right? Like this is a million, this is a million point two. figure out how much every acre is worth, every square inch is worth. And then for any part with a building on it, we assume that the heat map tells us what the land underneath it is worth. I mean, that's basically what I interpret as Al Bowie's method. And, and that, that works pretty well. I'm not sure what precision you're going to get out of that, like what your error bars are. It's probably going to be accurate for a whole area. But like, I'm not sure if that's accurate enough for the individual partial data. Well, well, we'll measure it and you can test it, right? You can test it by seeing like, if someone tears down a building later, you can see it's like, did the land sell for what I thought it would, you know? It will and be more accurate is, is more smooth, I guess, you know, and which I right. think is like in uh, city core, it's very smooth, but you know, it's also, but I, I don't know. Like, there's all these different well, factors. Like, I mean, if you've got, yeah. And some of the, some of the papers like account for, you know, well, we know there are discontinuities. Like you get to the other side of the tracks and land values fall right you walk and, up to a literal cliff or something and that's going to be a big difference right, exactly yeah. and so then there's the argument for the more opinionated method and i think you know and then some people were like oh well it's opinionated and it's like well yeah but these are experts and let's be real assessors are using opinions now we're just talking about being more rigorous than we already are like we're, we're not it's really weird when someone's like well we can't inject opinions into the mix it's like they're already doing it, right? So this could be an improvement on what you already have, right? We and need it's to acknowledge nice what these, the baseline is. If you can quantify, you know, here are our opinions and here are the weights, and you can have a very transparent way of just like that's so much better than just kind of yeah. the biases of someone's brain. Yeah, and you can interrogate it, and it's an objective standard. That doesn't mean it's a necessarily one hundred percent unimpeachable true standard. It's just saying that it's like it's objective. It doesn't depend on the person who's doing it, right? Yeah. Now, I mean, one argument is that it's like, okay, well, people will smuggle in racial bias in hidden ways. Like, oh, if it's too close to a basketball court, then, you know, it's worth less money, Mm. you know, or or things like that or whatever. And I mean, I think the more transparent and the more objective you make the model, the more you can interrogate stuff like that and, and have it out, right? You know, and raise objections to the assessment. That's part of the assessment process is dealing with objections. And, um, making it more of a transparent thing and having realist a big part of it is also having good access to good real estate data like in texas we have um a real estate non-disclosure law which means you don't have to share no Oof. like you know they don't necessarily need to tell anyone what the value of the property sold for now in practice it all winds up on mls and assessors are not supposed to use mls you know, and, you know, there's this like kind of day, there's this kind of like standoff between real estate agents. Not, why are they not supposed to? It seems like they should. Well, I mean, they should. Well, it's because it's the property of the real estate agents, right? Oh, so it's just, it's IP kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, real MLS leaks like a sieve, but it's one of those situations where it's like anyone can pirate software or movies and there's no way to stop an individual. 
But if you're a big company, you yeah. can't like pirate in an official capacity as part of your business. Yeah, and that's yeah, kind yeah. of the that's kind of what blocks assessors. Like if I want to get on MLS, like I can call up a real estate agent or a friend who's in real estate and be like, give me a login, bro. I want to look on MLS. But like if I'm an assessor, you know, there's there's like I I, I represent the government now. And like people are like, where'd you get these numbers? And I'm like, um, you know, um, so there's other things involved there. Um, I think we shouldn't write off real estate agents. I think real estate agents have a lot to gain from Georgism. It's like, hey guys, you want a lot more turnover? You want to make commission on turnover rather than, you know, juicing the value a little more? Like, I think this is very much in their interest. Um, and so I would like to see if it's possible to recruit to my allies, but I'm also not holding my breath. But some, there's only 12 states with non-disclosure laws. Unfortunately, Texas is one of them. The rest of the places don't have that. And so you have like good data. And um, that's why we're choosing Pennsylvania for our pilot project is it's like, it's considered some of the best data in the nation. So we want to see if you have really excellent data, what can you do? And hopefully we can take that to other places and be like, hey, you should consider overturning your non-disclosure law because it's going to allow you to pass, you know, exemptions on buildings, you know? So if you're complaining about property taxes, Mr. Huffines, why not just start with a building exemption? You know, yeah. and let's just collect the same amount of tax, but from land. Right. You know, and let's get really good assessments as we just proved we can do in Pennsylvania. You know, if our if our grant succeeds. Yeah, what a lot of places seems like they have like I know some places even say you must register like land sales in some sort of local newspaper. But in the end, it never gets collected like it's 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 technically public but it's hard to access and i'm just in pennsylvania like is is that something that like the data you're working with is that just out there can anyone just like look at these data sets i just just browsed the other day there's this huge database you can search it i mean i haven't like take it i haven't taken stock of exactly what's in there and how much data cleaning will be needed to be done but like people tell me it's pretty good and i've 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 played with it for a little bit and it's like wow this certainly can't do this in texas yeah. yeah, and just like some like local assessor's office data, I feel like you can look at it in the most ar- arduous ways in California, but like, yeah, you can't, it's all CGI web stuff, which is impossible right. to like, yeah, it's just, well, it'd be well, so nice. Good data would help so much. I mean, but like if you, if you, you know, you, you see these billionaires sometimes into Georgism every now and then, and it's like, okay, so whatever that guy's building, Telosa in the desert or whatever, or sure. Peter Thiel is interested in Georgia, it's like, hey, yeah. any billionaires? you know who are interested in this just buy zillow or redfin and just give us access to their database you know if you want if you really want to do something for the movement you could just give us real estate data by just like buying zillow or redfin and making their data public or yeah, if it's a real at least Tom Johnson, you know you know seeing the light moment i, I would uh you know, love to see you know some people really repent and like you know kind of give their uh their you know wealth be good, good use but and I, I just love too like one other thing too i never really thought of this because i always like thought of the past like yes if if you have vacant lot next to someone else like there is you know more or less you can assess it's pretty close you know that makes a lot of sense that like it would have similar land values but to use actual like kernels as far as like image processing to like yeah. smooth it out it's like oh of course it's a it's a smoothing kernel i never i mean of course right. every city is not a grid of parcels there's this right. whole topography topology. and there's a method in there that deals with the fact that you can expect discontinuities in places yeah you know and then there's a method that's like okay well you know i mean one method that's interesting on the hedonic regression is that it understands that like the majority of value is just distance from points of interest you know and like yeah. you get you figure out what those are by talking to human beings who are buying properties you're like why did you buy this property I'm like, for this 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 and this reason and you're like okay yeah. that thing's over there and that thing's over there and that thing's over there and the computer can calculate how far you are from all of them and how big your parcel is and 
you know, um, and then we can test. And, and the big part is it's like, okay, how do you, your magic unicorn tells you what the land is worth. The real thing is test it, right? Well, however you got your answer, test it. And that's what we're called racial studies. And a racial study basically is you wait until the property sells and then you see if it sells for what you thought it would. And it's a little more complicated with land value assessments because you need to be able to check that the land sold for what you thought it was. And it usually sells with the building. Yeah. But the way you can do that is like, first you wanna make sure your total assessment is correct. So like, let's get that done. And then, you know, some of your land's gonna be vacant. So make sure your vacant land sells for what you thought it would. And if you can hit both of those data points really consistently, that's a sign that you're, you're starting to get it right. And then also just like, if the predictions of Georgism start to appear, you know, that's another sign that you're probably doing it right. Like if you impose an LVT based on these assessments, um, you know, and you have the, the beneficial benefits, you know, it's probably a good sign that your assessments are accurate. And then the other thing is that um, look at complaints. Like you like complaints are kind of built into the system and um, people are gonna, people expect, you know, when I wrote this article, people were like, isn't everyone going to like protest and complain and like in their own self-interest? And it's like, well, we have evidence from these papers and from my interview, you know, that people do complain, but they complain way more about the building than they do about the land. That's interesting, yeah. You know, because they're like, well, I remodeled my kitchen and and his house is older than mine or whatever. So why did you like raise mine or or not his? Like sometimes people complain that like you didn't raise their assessment enough. Sometimes they complain that you raised it too high. But like with land, it's like there's so much less to the land. So you can be like, well, here's some other land that's just like yours and it's worth about the same. There's like less to point to. And so he says, you know, Gartney here, who I interviewed says, it's like so people tend to not complain as much. And so... um, I think if you just repeat this and you just keep going at it, we're, we're inevitably going to get better at this. And um, I think we're already pretty good. Yeah. And I love the fact like a logical thing, kind of just like common sense things fall out. I love this graphic you have of just like all the different weighting factors of like, you know, the kind of just the land value topography slope, you know, like how close you are to schools and transit. And they all show up as different kind of heat maps you can all superimpose. It's like, it's like, yeah, I mean, really, if it doesn't match common sense, if it was like completely out of left field, it'd be weird. Uh, it's, it's weird. Like some people try to make the argument that it's like you can't know. And I'm like, OK, to what degree can I not know? It's like, and they're like, you can't know and you shouldn't try. And I'm just like, it's like, it, it seems like. Well, it's just pure Austrian brain. It's like people feel like, yeah. oh, every, yeah, you yeah. But uh, we need to wrap up right now. But uh, just just in general, so what, what do you expect out of this uh, study in Pennsylvania? Just say, say a little bit what you're trying. Well, I will be happy if we can just replicate a study and um, show that we can do it as people who didn't write the original study using good data from Pennsylvania. And we can be like, here's a model. We built it. We trained this model, we got these results, um, we replicated some good papers, um, maybe you should use this method and then publish it so that people can use it, not just the data, but the model, nice. right? Yeah. So that we can be like, make it uh, some uh, a citizen science kind of thing where it's like, you can use this model to, um, I'd love to eventually productize it. And by product, I don't mean sell it. I mean, turn it into a, a good user experience that an actual assessor could use at their day job, right? And that would involve, that might be beyond the scope of the grant, but like if we get additional funding or it succeeds, we might do that next. But that would look like sitting down with actual working professional assessors, see what their day-to-day job is like, and just like file off all the hard edges, like make a good piece of software they could use. And then whenever someone says, oh, you'll never be able to do assessments correctly, go find the areas that have good data and be like, use this. 
Yeah. And here's the training materials for your assessors. And we're going to hook up with the IAO and um, the International Association of Assessment Officers and just be like, here's just a package, a good assessment package that you can do in your town now. Right. Just just here it is. We'll help you. You know, some of these state assessors are telling me it's like the, the, the main thing I do in my job is try to help my assessors do a better job. And they're constantly asking for help and they're constantly asking for resources and training. You know, so there's a real gap to fill there of just if you want to be able to have a good impact, like go out and help these assessors do their jobs, you know, um, find the ones that are asking for help, you know, rather than just showing up uninvited. But um, I think we can help them. I mean, they take pride in their work and they want to do a better job. And um, a lot of like real cutting edge research has come out like really recently, even Ted Guartney, who's this just like ancient wizard full of knowledge. Like there's new stuff that's been published since he's been retired. Right. You know what I mean? It's that we can all add into the mix. And I think we just need to take the good findings that are already out there and just, just promulgate them. Right. Just, just make the state of the art, the state of the practice, which it currently very much is yeah, well, it's all very, I mean, very exciting. I want to hear more, but uh, yeah, just in, in short, yeah, uh, you know, the articles are great to read through. I think, uh, you know, but you can find it at your uh, gameofrent.com uh, uh, website, uh, which has them all in a kind of nice, tidy, uh, one-stop shop. Uh, and I, and I, based upon the title, there is a exciting game coming up in the future. I guess we'll see more about that later. Yeah, I'll probably have to change the URL because there's a thegameofrent.com, which is an existing real estate board game. Um, so I'll have to come up with a new title in the future. Uh, we'll but yeah, yeah. But I, I am I'm work I'm a game designer, so I'd I'd love to make a, a, a real estate game kind of update on the landlord's game. Um, but yeah, I got to run now. But it's been a pleasure talking to you, Mark, as always. Um, happy to be back anytime. I write another <laughs> set of three articles we'll or see. the or the game. Want to talk about that uh, when 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 it drops? So uh, cool. Well, thanks for making the time, and yeah, it's been a pleasure. Okay, see you around. Go. We have been talking to Lars Doucet all about the theory and practice of landway taxation. There is a link to his series of articles in the show description. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of this radio program at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford 91.5.